inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. It's time for Ride On with Julie Goodnight. Since the last time we recorded, you know, I've really enjoyed a great summer here in Colorado. I'm sad it's almost over, but I'm excited to get back on the road again in September. I've got a lot of uh, really cool events coming up in the fall. You know, even though summer is a less busy time for me, it just always seems like I'm going to do a lot more stuff than I actually do. There's just not enough days in the week for me to do all the things I want to do. You know, I spend a lot of time riding, training horses and teaching either in person or creating content for the websites. And that takes up a lot of my time. And lucky for me, it's something I like doing and it's a lot of fun. But I also love to hike. I like to hike in the mountains every morning if I can. I love mountain biking as well. I think it's a great sport to help improve your balance. And it's a great aerobic activity. I do a lot of riding uphill. And also, I got a super nice bike. And my first new bike in, oh gosh, probably 15 years and um, it's a real high-tech fancy bike, which is amazingly easier to ride. So I've been having a lot of fun with that. And I've enjoyed some time on the water, boating, fishing. I do a lot of stand-up paddling. Probably one of the most little-known facts about me is that I used to paddle competitively when I was in college. I was nationally ranked paddler at one time. Um, I, my discipline was whitewater slalom, decked and open canoe, uh, single and mixed tandem. And, um, you know, for some strange reason, I, even though I hadn't paddled in probably 25 years, I picked it up again and it's like riding a bike and I really enjoy it. Also a great workout that, is supportive of my other sports because balance and core strength are the main things there and uh, coordination with your upper body. And so I enjoy that. And, and uh, you know, I wish I could do this stuff every day of the year, but here in Colorado, you know, I won't say paddling is only in the summer. I do paddle sometimes on a nice winter day as well. Uh, I, it's just a little riskier. Don't want to fall in the water. Speaking of fitness and working out and balance and core strength and all that, be sure to check out my Facebook group, Julie Goodnight's Five Pound Challenge. It's a community page where we talk about all this stuff, exercise, fitness, health. It's a supportive community to help people try to just get a little bit more fit and lose a little bit of weight at a time. So you can find it at facebook.com slash groups slash goodnight challenge. Check it out. I'll stretch this summer season to the very last hour, but I'm already getting in the mindset for the slew of clinics I've got coming up this fall. You know, just trying to make all the logistical plans, work on schedules, coordinate with my hosts, all that kind of stuff. And uh, it won't be long before I'm actually hitting the road again. I've got 
two ranch riding clinics coming up at the Sea Lazy U Ranch here in Colorado. Then I hop on a plane and fly to Ireland with my good friend and protege T. Cody. We'll be doing two riding tours. So we'll be there for two weeks with the Connemara Equestrian Tours. I'm super excited to go back to Ireland. I've been conjuring up images of our last trip and how much fun we had there. So I can't wait to get back there. After that, I head to Murfreesboro, October 21st for the CHA International Conference, where I'll be doing presentations. That event is primarily for riding instructors, trainers, and barn managers. However, it is open and welcome to anyone, no matter uh, what your position is in, in the horse world. And this event is a unique one because you can actually sign up to ride in the lessons that are taught there. School horses are provided, super nice horses. It'll be there at the university. So after that, I head back to Sea Lazy U for my final program of the year, which is the Horsemanship Immersion Program. This is a five-day horsemanship intensive. It is A to Z horses. We have a vet that comes and teaches some workshops, a lot of hands-on stuff, training, behavior, saddle fit, bidding. We really try to cover it all during the five days and also have a lot of fun trail riding and enjoying being at the luxurious ranch. So that finishes out the year for me, and then I'll be ready for my winter break by then. For more information on my clinics, horse expos, and riding vacations, please visit juliegoodnight.com slash events. And while you're there, check out my online training resources, memberships, and personalized coaching programs. Plus, we've got some innovative grooming tools, tack, bits, training equipment, and videos at shop.juliegoodnight.com. If you want to get the latest updates from me, sign up for my newsletter at juliegoodnight.com news. You can also follow me on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube at Julie Goodnight. In this episode of my podcast, I'll talk about what we mean by saying a writer has good hands. I'll talk about hand position, feel, the common mistakes riders make, what horses hate about riders, and what riders can do to improve their communication with their horse. Plus, in the What the Hey Q&A segment at the end of this show, I'll answer questions from listeners about how to teach a horse to neck rein and handling the emotional horse. Why is it important that a rider has good hands? And why should I even be talking about this today? Well, your hands are all about communication and control. Uh, I would say first and foremost about control of the horse, but beyond that, developing a refined and subtle line of communication. The use of the reins and the rider's hands um, turn out to be a huge source of tension and confusion for the horse. I, like you know, many people, who have taught riding and done a lot of training. I've stood in the middle of the arena for, you know, three decades now watching horses and riders and watching them um, objectively and acutely to try to understand, you know, how I can coach them better. So I've seen it day in, day out, again and again and again, um, how often the hands of the rider actually interfere 
with the cues the rider is giving or interfere with what the rider is asking the horse to do. And that always leads to tension and confusion for the horse. And generally, you wind up with a not very happy horse. If I could change one thing about riders everywhere that would help horses the most, it would be something about the way they use their hands. I'm not going to tell you that secret right now. I'm going to tell you exactly how later in this podcast. But I've often said if there's one thing I could do to help riders the most, it would be to change this one thing about the rider's hands. So when a horse learns to trust the hands of the rider, an amazing connection is possible. That's when you can achieve softness, unity, self-carriage. That's when you can achieve bridleless riding and that ultimate mind meld that can occur between a horse and rider that know each other so well that all the rider has to do is have a thought about going in a certain direction or doing a certain activity and the horse does it. That kind of mind meld, many, many riders probably listening to this today have at one time or another experienced that pure joy of riding a horse at that level. It's not necessarily the highest levels. It has to exist at the highest levels of the sport. But I've seen it exist between many horses and their riders who have just been together for a long time doing the same thing. So they've learned their own, say, sort of version of the language of riding. On the other hand, when a rider's hands are harsh, unrelenting, inconsistent, that almost always results in a horse that's tense, high-headed, and resistant. Often horses end up being punished for disobedience when it's actually the rider's interference that caused the unwanted response. Breaking gait is a good example of that, and sometimes even bucking, sometimes even rearing. So, you know, it's incumbent on the rider to be the best rider you can be for your horse. And so basically what we're talking about today is not really so much about the horse, but about the rider and how we can achieve the best hands we can. So let's take a look at what we mean by good hands, what the ideal is. We're also going to take a look at what the most common mistakes are. And um, then most importantly, we're going to talk about what you can do to be the best rider for your horse and to have really great hands because horses love riders with great hands. First, let me clarify some concepts to sort of make sure we're all on the same page. You know, our listeners are global. People are listening from many different countries. Certainly, our listeners are representing every different discipline that there is. I try not to get too much into the weeds on specific disciplines of riding, but keep a more high-altitude view of riding and horsemanship in general. So let's make sure we're all on the same page here about what I'm talking about today in terms of a rider having good hands. First of all, it doesn't matter to me whether you ride in a bridle with a bit or a hackamore, which is a bridle without a bit. It doesn't matter. Uh, Rain aids are the same. Uh, Riding one-handed and two-handed, the same rules apply basically to hackamores that apply to snaffle and curb bits. So don't be confused that I'm only talking about riding with a bit. Bitless bridles are a form of hackamores. They 
still operate on pressure, can be a lot of pressure. It's just not on the mouth of the horse. It's on the nose and chin of the horse, jaw of the horse. So we're not going to distinguish between the kind of bridle that you use. Pressure is pressure. You know, ultimately, for me in my training in horsemanship, it is my goal to be able to ride that horse without anything on its head, no halter, no nothing. And that is my goal because I want to develop my cues coming from my body and my position more than from any kind of pull on the reins. So the type of bridle you're using does not matter, but the style of rein that you use does matter. Certain styles of reins are easier or harder to use. Of course, the discipline that you ride is going to have a huge bearing on the type of rein that you use. And often reins are specialized to a discipline. But just in general, we kind of think about two different types of rain, either a closed loop rain, like the English rain, like my rope reins that I custom designed, roping reins, barrel reins. If you have just one closed loop that goes from one side of the horse's mouth to the rider and to the other side, that's a closed loop rein versus a split rein where you have two separate reins, one in each hand, and they're not connected. So the rein aids and the way that we use the reins are going to be the same, but different reins can be easier or harder to use. And you want to be able to, you know, adjust your rein to the activity. But when we work on developing bridleless cues and, and really trying to have the best hands that we can, you want to make sure your reins are long enough that you can completely loosen out the rein. That's going to generally be about a nine foot length if you're using a closed loop rein. So if you're riding with a real short closed loop rein, like a barrel rein or a roping rein, that's made for a very specific activity and not generally for working on having good hands. So also, another concept I want to clarify is the difference in riding one-handed and two-handed. In terms of classical horsemanship, when we talk about using your aids and your rein aids and your seat aids and your leg aids all together and collection and all that kind of stuff, it is presumed that you're riding two-handed because that is the sort of foundational base layer of everything we do. However, many sports and activities, we do one-handed, and, and it's very easy to train a horse to respond to the neck rein so that we can ride him one-handed, leaving our other hand free to do different activities. And so when we talk about and teach and are explaining rein aids, we'll always be talking about riding two-handed. If you do ride one-handed, and or when you switch to one-handed riding, you I, I can explain it best this way. If you imagine where your hand position is when you're riding two-handed, and there's a square that could be drawn around the outline of your two fists, and when you ride one-handed, you just bring that rein hand to the middle of the box, and everything else applies. It's just uh, in terms of rain aids and cues and how you use it, it's just a lot harder to do one-handed. So also when we're riding one-handed, that presumes your horse is doing everything perfectly as he was trained to do. If if all of a sudden you find yourself in the middle of a, a difficult situation and the horse is bolting or spooking or bucking or whatever, 
you would immediately go to two-handed riding because that's where you have more control. So um, don't get bogged down in one-handed versus two-handed. Just kind of think about them as the same thing. Uh, one-handed riding is more advanced. Also talk a little bit about riding on contact versus off contact. Often we frame this in terms of English versus Western. I don't think of it as English or Western, but I would say the majority of people do. Horses that are ridden on contact, as most English horses are, meaning that there's no slack in the rein and there is a direct feel between the hand of the rider and the bit or the mouth or the nose of the horse. That's direct contact. Now, that does not mean that there's a lot of pressure. It could be. It doesn't have to be. It does not mean that there's a lot of contact, but it means that there's contact. So I always train my horses, English and Western, for lightness. And I like horses to be able to work on contact as well as off contact. I want them to work on a loose rein in a low frame. I would like them to work in a collected frame. I would like them to accept direct contact. But I also want them to learn to come off contact, meaning when I pick up on the rein, they give to it before the contact comes. So in general, the sports that we do in English, a lot of galloping, a lot of jumping, a lot of collection, these kinds of activities are done on direct contact. Again, that doesn't mean it has to be heavy contact or hard contact, but that means, you know, basically, simplistically, there's no slack in the reins. When we ride Western, things are a little different. We train horses to work on a loose rein. We train them more for self-carriage in a collected frame. In other words, we teach them, when I ask you for collection, I'm going to shorten up the reins. I'm going to drive you up into my hands a little bit. But as soon as you round up, you will find a small release there. So we train that horse kind of from day one that when he gives to pressure from the rain, uh, he will find a release of pressure there. And that's a concept we call seeking out the slack. And it is what promotes self-carriage in the horse. And so to say you're riding on contact or off contact is kind of an oversimplification. If I'm using a nice heavy rein with a lot of feel, like my rope reins, or a really nice heavy set of leather split reins. Even from a slack rein, if I just barely wiggle my ring finger or my middle finger, and the rein, because it's heavy and a little more weighted at the bit end, that rein causes a little tiny wiggle to the corner of the horse's mouth, and he learns that to be a response to give and bend and break at the pole. And I never have to go to more contact than that. I hope that clarifies a little bit in terms of how we use contact. Now, when a rider becomes reliant on contact, big problems start evolving. So when I say I'm willing to ride a horse on contact, that does not mean I'm micromanaging him. That does not mean I'm holding relentless pressure on two reins at the same time. Um, that's a whole nother subject for a different podcast, but uh, you know we try to avoid using two reins at the same time because of the tension uh, that causes in the in the horse's head and neck and jaw. So, it, in other words, if the rider, as many novice riders do, think that the only thing standing between them and total mayhem on the horse 
is the contact and the turning and the stopping and the pressure that they're using on the reins and they hold relentless contact, um, then the horse can get very fussy, very resistant, um, and very disobedient fast. So also, if you're reliant on the contact you're holding on the horse in order to make him do what he's supposed to be doing without contact, like staying on the rail or, uh, you know, not pulling towards the barn or not pulling towards his friend. If you're reliant on contact or holding the horse in a speed, maybe he's uh, going too fast all the time and you're just constantly holding him back as you ride. All of those are big red flags that something has gone wrong in your relationship. That's a disobedient horse. And you may have driven into that from holding relentless contact or he may have learned naughty tricks all on his own and you're holding him on the rail isn't fixing him. You're holding him at a slower speed isn't fixing the problem in his foundational training that he has. So let's now talk about what proper hand position is or what the ideal is for having good hands. And let me just remind you again that Good hand position is the same for all disciplines of riding. And yeah, we use certainly when you're roping or when you're doing mounted shooting, good example. When you're doing certain disciplines, you might be using your other hand for something else, in which case hand position is going to be slightly altered. But again, we always go back to these basic two-handed fundamentals, and then we adjust the specifics we do for an activity to stay within the realm of proper hand position. So whether you're riding one hand or two or doing something altogether different with your horse, you want to kind of try to keep in mind what the proper position is. First of all, your hands should always be in front of the saddle, no matter what you're doing with the horse. And riding is a constant process of shortening and lengthening your reins and most often when I see a rider's hands coming behind the pommel of the saddle, it's because their reins are too long. They're trying to turn or stop or collect or cue the horse for something, but their reins are way too long. They're flapping in the breeze. And so in order to find contact, they end up pulling their hands back way too far. That alters your balance. It makes you ineffective, obviously, with your reins. And it just kind of throws things all out of whack. So your hands always in front of the saddle and we constantly shorten and lengthen reins as we ride. You should get very, very adept at that until you can shorten and lengthen your reins with your fingers and nobody could ever even see you were doing it. Again, that's a, that's a whole nother subject. And I think there's plenty of information on my website, on my YouTube channel about how to shorten and lengthen reins but it's incumbent on the rider to learn that and to practice it until you're very coordinated with your hands. For ideal hand position, the rider should always have a straight line from elbow to the corner of the horse's mouth. And again, your hands are well in front of the saddle. In fact, I would like you to keep your hands as far forward as you can without straightening your elbows. And that line from the rider's elbow through the radial bone, thumb, and fingers should point directly to the corner of the horse's mouth. 
no matter what discipline you're doing and what kind of horse you're riding, it's the level of the horse's head that actually dictates your hand position. In other words, if I were riding a very high-headed upright horse, like let's say he's a big Tennessee walker and he's super upright and maybe he's saddlebred or maybe I'm riding saddle seat or, you know, whatever, a gated horse that really sits back, built uphill. My hands are naturally going to be higher than that rider that's riding, let's say, a quarter horse, a stock horse that's got a super low headset who wants to carry his nose down around his knees all the time. Um, that rider's going to have her hands very low all the way down probably to the horse's withers. So as the horse raises and lowers his head, you need to develop as a rider with good hands, this subconscious ability for your hands to just automatically lift and lower as your horse's head does. That's a huge skill in a rider that not many riders have until they reach a higher level. But if every time my horse's pole slightly lowers, my hands automatically relax and lower too, that horse learns to trust my hands and he learns to trust that when he relaxes, he will always be rewarded and never be penalized. It's sad to see a horse relaxing in their work and then his head lowers when he relaxes. It always happens. And if the rider is inattentive and does not drop and lower her hands, the horse hits the bit. And now in his mind, he feels like he's been punished for relaxing. So you can see how that might lead to some unnecessary tension in a horse. So straight line from elbow to the corner of the horse's mouth, rising and lowering as the horse's head does. There's a lot of ways you can mess up that straight line. And here's all the ways you can mess up that straight line. You could have your hands too high. You could have your hands too low. You could have them too far apart or too close together. Or you can just mess it up in your wrists. If you want to hold your hands out in front of you now as if you were holding the reins and you're stretching towards the corner of your horse's mouth, if you allow your wrists to turn so that your hands are flat, like you were playing a piano, we call this piano hands, you no longer have a straight line from your elbow to the corner of the horse's mouth. If you bend your wrists in, let's say, let's say you have a nice straight line with your thumbs in the up position, but you allow your wrists to bend and cock your hands in, you've also broken a straight line. And the straight line is really important because it's what we call the clear line of communication. It's important to balance. It's important to having feel of the horse's mouth or of his face. Also, you can't see from the horse's back whether you have a straight line or not. We coach novice riders very heavily until they sort of develop that intuitive feel of always having that straight line to the horse's mouth. But if you can think of, I'm going to talk more in just a minute about how you develop better hands, but if you can think of stretching and reaching towards the corner of the horse's mouth all the time, instead of pulling back and taking away all the time, that right there will help you have better hand position. Your hands should move elastically with the horse's head whether he's moving his head up or down, or whether it's just swinging in a natural way with his gait like it does at the walk and canter, or maybe you're making a turn and the horse's head is swinging to the side. If your hands can move with the head of the horse 
anytime we ask it to move in a certain direction or anytime the horse is lowering the head. When the horse walks, his, his head, uh, check this out about your horse. Horses will kind of move their head two different ways at the walk. They'll either kind of swing it side to side or they'll bob it a little more up and down when they walk. But either way, your hands should be giving and stretching, stretching, stretching elastically towards horse's mouth in the rhythm of that walk as his head moves. When you canter, your horse's head lifts up and down, up and down, up and down with every stride of the canter. And if your hands don't move with that head as his head naturally moves down in the canter, then what happens is he hits the bit and he runs into the bit because you didn't have soft releasing elastic hands and then he doesn't want to canter anymore and then he doesn't trust your hands. So that elasticity is important to develop. That starts with having a good balanced position. In other words, you're sitting nice and vertical on your two seat bones and you have nice, soft, relaxed neck and shoulders and nice, long, straight spine. Also, you want to learn as a rider to be able to seek out your own source of tension. All of us carry tension in different areas of our body. You might tend to clench your jaw. You might tend to stiffen your neck. You might tend to turn your neck a little sideways or lift your shoulders in tension or kind of roll your shoulders forward and cave in at the chest. Sometimes people actually tense and brace right in the middle of the rib cage, right at the xiphoid process, and they kind of cave in at the rib cage. You probably tense at the same place every day. So figure out where that is and, and have the self-discipline to constantly coach your own self to, to relax. So you have that nice, soft upper body, and that's one of the uh, most important aspects of having a good hand position. Your upper arms are stabilized by your rib cage. So as you reach forward towards the mouth of the horse, you want to allow your upper arms to come in just a little bit. Maybe think about your upper arms being more on the front of your rib cage. But I want to develop that contact with my upper arm at my rib cage. Not a squeezing contact, but I would say more of a touching kind of contact. And this is important because it allows you to stabilize your arms and your hands with your torso, with your rib cage, and it allows for better communication with the horse because do that for me now, just unless you're driving, then don't do this. But if you're sitting in a chair, you can kind of sit up straight and tall. Imagine you're sitting on a horse and you've got two hands on the reins and you're reaching forward towards um, the mouth of the horse you kind of just allow your elbows to turn in a little bit so that you feel contact between your upper arm and your rib cage. And now sitting up tall, if you just slowly turn and look to the right, see how your rib cage, as you twist your torso and you have that contact with your upper arm, your rib cage automatically moves your hands, your lower arms, and now kind of slowly come back to center and reach for the mouth of the horse. And now sitting up nice and tall, stretching through the top of your head, I want you to just slowly rotate the other way and turn and look 
and really focus on how your shoulder is opening, your, your inside arm and hand is opening, your outside arm and hand is closing. So having that contact with your upper arm and your rib cage is important for stabilizing your hands, arms, so your horse can trust them more. Um, but it's also really critical to having that um, most light and responsive communication with the horse when it comes to turning in particular. So I want to learn to ride with my torso and not with my hands. Again, um, hands reaching as far forward as possible without straightening your elbows because straightening your elbows would cause you to lose elasticity. So if we can imagine from a slight bend in our elbow, imagine that you had a rubber band that was sort of connected to your hip bone and that wanted to bring your elbow back towards your hip but that you're stretching forward towards the horse's mouth all the time, stretching that elastic towards the horse. Now, one more uh, little technicality about your hand position. Uh, the angle of your hands is important. I already talked about uh, we don't want flat piano hands. Uh, we want the thumbs to be in the upright position, but you don't want your fists straight up and down. You're going to have a natural slight angle in. It's kind of the same angle that you might use if you reached out to shake someone's hand. And um, it's important to keep your reins in your fingers and not in your fists. So when we talk about feel, we're talking about our fingers. We're not talking about our fists and, and a white knuckle grip. So I want the reins to lay across my fingers. I want my fingers closed softly on the reins so that my hands are and fingers are very relaxed, but I have the ability to close on the rein any time if I were to have trouble or an emergency or anything like that. Now, let me tell you one small difference in English and Western regarding close and open fingers. In general, we expect English riders to have their fingers closed completely around the reins. That does not mean you need to grip the reins or hold them in your fists or have any kind of tension in your fingers. And you can still have the reins in your fingers and have feel. But we want your fingers closed softly. And in Western riding, we often encourage riders to open their fingers. And here's the main difference. Remember when I was talking about riding on contact and off contact? If you are riding on direct contact and your horse were to stumble or trip or do anything suddenly, if your fingers were open, he would easily pull the reins right out of your hands. So we want your fingers closed for safety reasons so you don't drop a, a rein. When we ride Western, we often ride on what we call a drape in the rein. And so that's with a quite loose rein and a drape between the hand and the mouth of the horse. Um, and then when you ride like that, first of all, if the horse trips or throws his head or moves suddenly, he's not going to pull the rein out of your hand because there's some slack in it. Second of all, we want to use the slightest wiggling of our fingers to generate a response from the horse, just the slightest wiggling of the rein. And so that's easier done with your fingers open. So that's just a small difference in style, uh, but it kind of originates from a safety reason. Uh, we do want to see the English rider uh, with closed fingers. Now let's talk about some of the most common mistakes of the rider. Again, from watching 
literally thousands of horses and riders from the middle of the arena, maybe as many as 10,000. It's been a long time since I've tried to uh, estimate that. I've watched a lot of horse and rider pairs, as anyone in my occupation has done. And I see the same mistakes over and over on a daily basis, particularly when it comes to usage of the hands. I would say what I consider the most egregious mistake and the one that I wish I could fix everywhere and the one that I focus on a lot is teaching riders not to use the reins first. All of us were taught the same way to ride a horse. First time you got up on that horse and, and whoever was in charge needed to give you uh, the most simplistic instructions they could to keep you safe on that horse, they unfortunately taught you when you said, how do I make him turn? They said, pull on the reins. And when you said, but how do I make him stop? They said, pull on the reins. So we learn, unfortunately, from day one to pull on the reins as a cue. But then it turns out later on, when you get to a higher level of riding, you're going to find out that reins aren't a cueing device at all. Reins are actually a reinforcement device. If you do your job as a rider well and you can communicate to your horse, you should not need to pull on the reins um, because we have so many other and better means to communicate with the horse, primarily through your seat and legs, through the way that you look, through the way you twist and turn your body, like I was just showing you uh, with that connection with your rib cage. So think of it this way when I want to cue my horse to turn, from a nice balanced position with my hands stretching toward the horse's mouth and imagining I have a neck brace on, I'm going to slowly twist and turn and look in the direction I want to turn. I'm going to allow my inside hand to open and my outside hand to close. And without ever causing any contact to the horse's mouth, he will know and understand and feel that I intend to go in that direction. If he does not promptly come into a turn, I will then bump slightly, take a slight feel of the inside rein, inside rein only, to reinforce the cue that I gave him with all of my other aids. So in that way, your rein and the contact you use becomes a reinforcement to the cue. There were many cues that came from my body long before the touch of the rein came. So think of your reins as reinforcement to a cue, not the cue itself. And that alone would progress you light years in terms of having good hands. Also, the reins are not there for micromanagement. I alluded to this earlier, but you don't steer and ride the horse through the reins like it was a car. The horse has eyes, he has a brain, he has feet, he knows what he's doing, he knows where he's going, he knows what you're going to ask him to do. He's not doing it because you're constantly steering the steering wheel. So we train horses that once I ask you to do something, for instance, once I ask you to go in this direction at this speed, I'm going to sort of uh, just sit back and ride and your job is to keep going in that direction and that speed until I tell you to do something different. And so when I want you to do something different, I'll either sit back and say, whoa, if I want you to stop, 
or I will gather up my reins and I will start applying the cues to turn. And then I will cue the horse back to straightness and then off we go again. So we don't micromanage the horse through the reins. It's very hard to get that point across to riders who have a sort of subconscious feeling that 100% of their control of the horse is, is coming through having contact on the reins for every second of every ride. And then that brings up another really common mistake of the rider, which is having what I call greedy hands instead of generous hands. So greedy hands are um, most often seen in riders that lack confidence. Uh, Often um, these riders are on horses they don't trust. Now, which came first, the chicken or the egg in terms of the trust (laughs) and the horse's behavior. However, things aren't generally going well when you see a rider with greedy hands. So greedy hands are the constant taking away. Hands that are constantly coming back towards the belly or towards the pommel of the saddle. Hands that are constantly taking away and pulling back on the reins for no reason. Hands that even when you're asking the horse to go, you're pulling back on the reins. And I want actually to develop the exact opposite in a rider. Uh, What I call giving hands and generous hands are those hands that are always offering more to the horse, not taking away, but giving more. You can take away rain anytime you want in a heartbeat, but trusting that horse and giving him rain and rewarding him when he starts doing his job, that's what leads to a real satisfactory relationship with the horse and a happy horse, trusting him to do his job and allowing him to do his, do his job, like giving him more freedom with the reins. And by the way, just because you're riding without a bit doesn't mean it's okay to have greedy hands because that will lead to the exact same problems that having greedy hands with a bit will in terms of developing a resistant, stiff, racy, unhappy uh, horse. Also, along the same lines, often people are riding with unrelenting contact. In other words, somebody said, this is the length of rein you should use and you should have this much contact no matter what. As the horse relaxes, we give him rein. As he starts doing his job, we're going to give him a little bit of rein. Um, There's constant taking and giving of contact in terms of communication with the horse and what you're asking him to do. So contact on the horse's mouth should always be short-lived, light as possible, and serving a purpose, not just constantly present. I equate that to driving with one foot on the brake. So if I've got one foot on the accelerator, giving my car a lot of gas, and my other foot has just as much pressure on the gas pedal, think of what bad I'm causing there. So same thing with the horse. And that unrelenting contact is uh, one of the most common causes of a high-headed horse. People are like, how do I get my horse's head down? Well, quit doing that. Um, It's also one of the largest sources of resistance in the horse. Giving conflicting signals obviously is a big problem, but unfortunately most riders have no idea they're doing it unless they're under supervision occasionally from an instructor or trainer. I'll tell you some really common ones. One thing, one thing is in the horse that's lazy or breaking gait all the time or stopping and not going anywhere. Um, that is almost, uh, let me say, that is often 
caused by the rider holding too much contact. And uh, for instance, if you're trying to get your horse to canter, but every time his head naturally drops it with every stride, he hits the bit, he's not going to keep cantering. If he then gets penalized and punished for breaking gait or being lazy, but it's actually the ineptitude of the rider that's causing the problem, you can see how that might lead to some confusion and resistance on the part of the horse. Another really common uh, problem I see with conflicting signals is when people, and honestly, sometimes I'll see this in pretty advanced riders, but with two hands on the reins, they go to ask that horse to turn, but they pull both reins. And, you know, there is a really, really important concept in classical horsemanship in terms of using your hands properly that says the outside hand should never cross the midline of the horse's neck. Never, ever, ever, ever should the outside rein cross the midline of the horse's neck. Because if you're riding two-handed and you go to turn your horse and you open with the inside and you close with the outside, but you just keep pulling with that outside rein and your hand crosses the midline, you start actually turning the horse's nose the opposite direction at that point. So it's an extremely conflicting signal. It's, it's one of those things, turning with two hands, pulling on two reins at the same time to turn your horse is a really common cause of resistance and running through the bridle and developing stiffness and heaviness. Also along the same lines, but a little subtler is a misuse of the outside rein. Yes, we do use contact on the outside rein in higher level training, such as in collection, sometimes in bending, but it is soft and it is with discretion, not constant and unrelenting. So if I'm asking, for instance, let's say I'm doing a slow collected trot with my horse and I wish to do circles and I want him to arc through his spine from nose to tail. So I ask him to bend his nose to the right but I don't reach forward with my left hand or soften with my left rein or slightly loosen my outside rein. In asking his nose to come to the right, I've then increased the pressure on the left side of his mouth. So he's penalized by the outside rein. So be careful with that outside rein. You need to make sure you're using it appropriately because, again, it can be a common source of problems. Another really common conflicting signal that people often are giving with with no realization at all. You're going to see this in the lazy beginner's horse, and you're going to see this a lot more with novice riders. But even in a more advanced rider, if you have a horse that's refusing to go forward and you start kicking it hard, which I'm not a big proponent of, but that's what people do. If you start kicking really hard with your legs, often, more often than not, the rider is also pulling back on the reins every time they kick. So in other words, when you kick really hard, you're sort of putting your shoulders and arms into it as well. And that's affecting a pull on the horse's mouth with every time you kick. And often horses will be more worried about their mouth than they will about their rib cage. And you will uh, end up actually training that horse not to go forward. So it's really imperative anytime a horse is refusing to move forward or acting lazy 
It's really imperative that the rider exaggerates the forward release on the horse, exaggerates a loosening of the reins, and you really exaggerate reaching for the horse's mouth at the same time you're asking it to go with your legs. Now, one last really common mistake that we see in in riders in regards to how they use their hands has actually to do with a failure in rein management. Learning to manage your reins appropriately and effectively is a really big skill. It takes time. It takes coordination. It takes experience to know when should my reins be loose? When should I hold the reins a little closer? When can I trust my horse? When can I not trust my horse? Well, how is this situation different from that situation? When do I shorten? When do I lengthen? Rain management, that ability to shorten and lengthen reins in a split second instantaneous way. In other words, there are times when I'm going to totally loosen my horse's reins out to the bitter end so that he can put his, maybe put his head down to eat or drink. Maybe I just want to uh, cool him out a little bit. Uh, maybe we're just relaxing, but some unknown, you know, drama happens like, you know, a sudden startle, I need that ability to be able to instantaneously shorten both reins and do what I need to do in order to do an emergency stop on a spooking horse. But lengthening and shortening reins is uh, an important skill and the knowledge and experience of when to shorten and when to lengthen is also something you're going to gain over time. And then also, depending on the type of reins that you use, shortening and lengthening might be done slightly differently and might be easier or harder. I'll put in a plug for my closed loop rope reins, probably my single best product of the stuff I've actually created. They are really easy to use. They have a lot of feel because they're heavy, made of a really high quality rope that has a lot of feel. Center marker helps you always know where the middle of your reins are without looking down. And then they are the perfect length for all around arena and trail kind of riding. And so the type of rein that you use is going to greatly affect how easy it is to shorten and lengthen your reins. But you also need to work on knowing and understanding that not only do you constantly shorten and lengthen reins, but when do you want to lose rein? When do you want to shorter rein? When are you going to reward the horse? When are you going to take away rein? Basically, we always shorten our reins in preparation to cue the horse for anything. So it becomes a pre-signal to the horse that you're about to cue him, a slight shortening of the reins and the rider closing her legs and coming to an attentive seat. That's a big pre-signal to the horse that he should get ready and listen to a cue. So learn more about that and understand that's a very important part of riding. So just kind of as we wind to an end here, I'm throwing out a lot of stuff about your hands. and uh, But, you know, there's a lot to it because think about how significant this is to your horse, whether or not the rider has good and trustworthy hands. So let me just kind of in conclusion Talk about what are exactly the things that you can do to have better hands and to develop those great hands that all horses love and perform best under. First of all, let me say position, position, position. If you don't have regular coaching on your position, figure out a way to get it. 
I coach a lot of riders online that live all the way across the ocean or in Timbuktu. We do it through videos and through education, but having someone analyze your riding position every now and then, even you can do it yourself, learn what good position is, and then make a video of yourself and analyze it. But when you are in correct, balanced, vertical position on a horse, you have much more ability to control the horse and cue the horse using your whole body. So good hands start with having a good position. Sit well back, reach well forward, relax your shoulders and arms, and then work on developing giving hands, like I was talking about just a minute ago. Work on always offering more to your horse, that elasticity, that stretching towards your horse's mouth. I've got exercises on my online programs to help you develop good hands and to help you learn to ride your horse without holding on to the reins. If you can set up scenarios that allow you to ride without holding the reins, you'll not only learn to have a better seat, uh, but you'll develop a line of communication that is not using that constant pull on the horse's mouth. And then you'll develop more trust in your horse. And to your horse, you'll become a much more trustworthy rider because you're not reliant on the reins. You need to learn to use your seat and legs first to stop and turn. Horses stop really well off your seat and legs, and they turn really well off your seat and legs. Look, your horse wants to stop and turn. He really doesn't have an argument about turning or stopping most of the time. Not all of the time, but most of the time. So why should it take a pull on the mouth to affect a stop or a turn? All over my website, all over my YouTube channel, and in my most popular training videos, there's information about how to cue the horse to stop and turn without pulling on the reins. I do it in every single clinic that I teach. And 100% of the time, within about five or 10 minutes, every single horse and rider are executing turns without holding on to the reins. So do yourself a favor and do your horse a favor and learn how to use all of your aids when it comes to stopping and turning, not just the reins. Remember your reins are reinforcement, not a cueing device. By the way, going to reins first is a very, very hard habit to break. Very hard, particularly if you're like me and you came up in English disciplines and a lot of dressage, we were sort of trained to be reliant on the reins. And so learning to, for instance, ask my horse to stop from my seat, from my voice, from a softening of my legs, and then waiting, give him the opportunity to respond before I go to reinforcement with the reins. Just that split second, a half a second of difference between applying those aids and waiting before you go to the reins will teach the horse to respond to your other aids. So keep that in mind. Have self-discipline. By the way, I'm not saying don't use the reins because your reins are there for reinforcement. And that's how we train horses, by using reinforcement of the reins. Just make sure you're giving another cue first. Also, learn to develop pre-signals in your riding. Just a minute ago, I was talking about how before we ask a horse to do something, we gather up the reins and we come to attention. We softly close our legs on the horse. We might even add a little voice cue that helps the horse know what you're about to ask him. So use pre-signals. Give the horse time to think and ride with all of your aids all of the time. 
So remember in the beginning of this topic I was talking about, there was one thing I could change about riders everywhere to help horses the most, that it would be something about their hands. And this one thing I'm going to tell you will help you and your horse more than any one thing I know to tell you, particularly as it relates to how to use your hands better. And that is this, simply slow down what you do with your hands. Slow it down a lot. Use your hands always in slow motion, whether you're asking the horse to turn or stop or come into collection or go forward. And by using your hands in slow motion, it gives the horse time to think about what you're getting ready to ask him to do. And let's say what I'm asking him to do is turn. And so before I ever come to the turn, I make sure I'm sitting up nice and tall and straight. My hands are stretching towards the horse's mouth as far forward as they can be. And then in very slow motion, I slowly rotate my head in the turn, my shoulders open, and my lower arms slowly start moving to the right or left, then the horse has time to start turning before the contact on his mouth ever comes. And he will avail himself of that every single time because no horse wants his mouth pulled on ever. So if we learn to use our hands in slow motion, the horse will learn to trust your hands and he will learn to start performing what you're asking of him before you ever actually engage the bit. And that is the lightest, most responsive horse you could ever hope to have. By the way, in case you're a person that's done groundwork with me or, or groundwork in some other way, if you've ever done any kind of liberty work with the horse, you might have drawn some similarities between what you do on the ground with the horse and what you do with your hands in the saddle, our hands guide the horse and contact should only come as reinforcement to the cue and not the cue itself. So keep that in mind as you ride and every day try to be a rider with good hands. And now it's time for my favorite segment, What the Hey? Q&A. Each month, we pick a few unique questions from our listeners and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hay, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight Horsemanship or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. By the way, we keep all your questions in a queue, dropping off only the ones I've already answered. So even if I've not answered your question yet, I hope to get to it soon, or maybe I'll turn your question into the main topic for a future podcast which I've been known to do. So stay tuned. Our first question comes from Linda on Facebook and she asks, what is the best way to teach neck reining? Well, Linda, first of all, I compliment you for keeping your questions short and concise. And it's a great one in timing with the subject of today's podcast. And I've already actually sort of alluded to it. And um, you know, the neck rein is one of many different rein aids that we use on horses. You know, we have direct rein, leading rein, opening rein, neck reins, uh, bearing rein is a, is a form of neck rein. 
with opposition. We have indirect rain in front of the withers, indirect rain behind the withers, and we have the pulley rain. These are all different ways that you can use your reins to cue the horse for different responses. And obviously, I'm not going to go into all of that now, but neck rain is just one of them. And the neck rain, interestingly, is a trained response. A horse won't naturally neck rein. Um, we can start that training from day one, even from our groundwork. Uh, we can you know, teach the horse to move away from pressure that he feels on his neck. In the tradition of the Western horse, neck reining is taught from day one. You may have seen the Makati reins that are made from horse hair. And in the Vaquero tradition, young horses were started uh, using that style of rein. And one reason why, if you've ever picked up a pair of those reins, they have little bristly hairs that stick out everywhere. When that rein slightly even touches the horse's neck, he can feel it because he's so sensitive skinned. So from day one, we can um, teach that horse to move away from the pressure he feels on his neck. And that is the neck rein cue. The neck rein is never... Uh, used with pulling or pressure because of what I told you earlier. It, it, at any time your outside hand crosses the midline of the horse's neck, you're now giving the opposite cue, so you're giving a conflicting signal. So when the neck rein is properly applied, it is just the pressure of the rein touching the horse's neck that he learns to respond to. And the way he learns to respond to it is by using your other hand and by using the leading rein to reinforce the neck rein. So imagine you're sitting on a horse and you're sitting up nice and straight and your hands are out in front of you stretching toward the horse's mouth. And again, in order to turn, you're going to imagine you have a neck brace on. And when you turn and look, your shoulders open and both of your hands move because your inside hand opens and your outside hand closes. Now. The outside hand closes to the neck of the horse, and at that point, the neck rein is touching and the neck rein is cueing. But if he doesn't know what it means, that won't cause a turn. But my inside hand is opening in the direction of the turn and really literally opening like it was a hitchhiker's motion. And now I can take a slight contact, a little touch or feel of the corner of the horse's mouth with my inside hand or leading rein to reinforce the neck rein. So at the point at which I'm teaching the horse to neck rein, which for a lot of Western trainers is going to be the very first time they ride the horse. Now that horse isn't going to be proficient in neck reining for a long time, but we apply the cue and then reinforce with the leading rein to affect the turn. Over time, you use less and less leading rein, more and more neck rein, but you always reinforce with the leading rein. You never reinforce with the neck rein. I think that kind of gives you, in a nutshell, the process. So I would really encourage you to either check out my rein aids on YouTube. My Goodnight Principles of Riding Volume 5 is called Refinement and Collection, and that is advanced use of the aid, including all the aforementioned rein aids that I just talked about, tells you how to use your reins, not only how to train the neck reins 
um, but how to use different styles of reins for different training endeavors, for collection, for lateral movements, all that kind of stuff. Rein aids are really important. Once you get to a certain level of riding, you really need to learn how to be quite articulate with the reins. And it, it might surprise some people to know this, but horses don't automatically know how to neck rein. It's a cue that has to be taught to the horse. Our second question is from Jill. And Jill's question comes from one of the Daily Dose videos that I did with Mal's horse, Woodrow. Woodrow has his own little fan base out there. He is quite the character. This video is called Ground Manners Number 7, Rating Speed and Handling the Emotional Horse. If you haven't seen it, you can watch it and any of the Daily Doses for free on juliegoodnight.com slash Daily Dose. Jill's question is this. It's kind of a long one, so bear with me. I love all of your videos and philosophies, but this is one video I will watch over and over. Everything Woodrow did mimicked my six-year-old mare to the letter. I really never had words for her behavior other than tantrum. Often I just feel she has too much pent-up energy, but she also gets emotional about things. I have worked with her on boundaries recently, trying things from one of your early groundwork videos with Woodrow, and she wouldn't have anything to do with me for a week afterwards. Seriously, she wouldn't come to me. She wouldn't make eye contact. She was pissed off. I simply asked her to stop crowding and creeping into me while standing in a halter and lead. Watching you continue the lesson after his tantrum in this video spoke volumes, and I know full well that's what I need to do. But it can be scary to continue when she's in this state of mind. Like Woodrow, I don't believe she would intend to try and hurt me by striking, kicking, or running over me, but I'm still afraid to get hurt. Do you think Woodrow will get over his emotionality in situations where you ask him to do something he knows how to do, but doesn't feel like doing with age, time, and practice? Or is this just an ongoing issue for emotional horses? Wow, thank you for your question. And there's a lot there. And um, first of all, let me tell you, Woodrow, I believe, was just a three-year-old when that video was made. He was very green. And he had been started under saddle, but had not really had a lot of groundwork done with him. So he had a lot of bad habits that just, just from really not ever having done any groundwork. And then there was an interesting situation that led up to that situation of him throwing a tantrum. And the situation was this. We were planning to film three videos that day, three different groundwork with lessons. And one of them, the first one, I believe, was just reviewing a previous lesson. We did the first video and he was great. And we took a pause and we reset. And we did the second video and he was also great. And after the second video, I mistakenly thought we were finished. And we started talking about how great we had done, what a good horse he was. And we started kind of walking back towards the barn. And then all of a sudden, uh, which, by the way, we were walking back towards the barn where his best friend was tied up. And all of a sudden, we remembered we had one more video to do. And these were just short, you know, five, 10 minute videos. So we go, oh, wait, we got one more to do. So when we turned around, we'd only gone a few steps towards the barn, but when we turned around to walk back to reset to do this third video, I knew already he was going to be mad. 
he immediately bristled up and got kind of on the muscle and a little defensive. So as I started that video, I already had a pretty good sense that he was going to get in a little bit of a tantruming mood. And, and he did not disappoint. And I think that one of the things you alluded to is that I just sort of laughed off his tantrums and kept on doing what I was asking him to do. And then he became compliant again. So one thing that was important was I knew the, even though this wasn't my horse and I had not worked with him very much, there's a lot to this horse. He's got a lot of personality. He, he is not a super calm, deadheaded, dud kind of a horse. This horse has a lot of get up and go. He's got a lot of bravery. He's got a, an incredible personality. He's just hilarious horse. Uh, he's got no meanness in him at all, but there's a lot to him. He's young and he's a busy-minded horse. There are a lot of horses out there like that, and they make sometimes the best horses. You just have to channel that energy in the right direction. So let me just address the little thing about your mare being mad at you when you tried to uh, establish boundaries. There's an old wives tale about which is better, a mare or a gelding. And it goes like this, you know, a mare will work 10 times harder for you than a gelding ever will, as long as you're on her good side. And if you're not, she's going to work 10 times harder against you. And what you experienced with your mare was her resentment over you changing the way you did things. And it sounds like she probably got over it, but she, mares are very relationship oriented and she thought your relationship was a certain way and you changed the rules by establishing boundaries and it made her mad. A gelding would have just said, oh, okay. If you were a gelding like, Woodrow, who has a pretty strong sense of what he thinks is right and wrong, he might have had a momentary little shake of the head or stomp his foot or something, but then he'd be just like, okay, whatever, let's go. What are we going to do next? But a mare tends to be more relationship oriented, and sometimes that comes out in the way you just described. That doesn't mean you shouldn't have boundaries, it just means you probably should have had those boundaries to begin with. And she was a little indignant about you kind of changing things up for her. By the way, Woodrow today, I'm going to say that was in, in March of 2020 that we filmed that because it was during the shutdown, the original pandemic shutdown. And I was making these videos every single day. He was a young three-year-old, very green, little to no groundwork. And fast forward to today, two and a half years later, he is a very mature, well-trained, well-mannered horse. No, he does not throw tantrums. No, he is 100% obedient in anything you ask him to do. Those were silly tantrums of childhood that stemmed from him not understanding how to behave appropriately and him not understanding that as long as he does behave appropriately, everything will be good for him. And that following the rules is a good thing. So he's not like that at all. And no, I do not expect tantruming behavior to continue. If it is, we need to figure out what's going on there because horses learn to respond and horses learn to behave and they learn to follow rules and they learn to appreciate boundaries and they become quite cooperative and quite compliant um, as they train and mature. If that's not happening, something's going wrong. Now, 
Can a horse have too much emotionality? Absolutely. How can we channel that energy in a different direction? Look, if I have a high strung horse that's kind of prone to emotionality, I'm going to do everything I can to keep the horse calm, including if that means moving that horse more, working it on the circle, changing directions a lot, trotting it out, long trotting that horse. But obedience is important always. When a horse has an emotional outburst, almost always it's best to ignore it. If you react in any way to emotionality in a horse, you take the chance of fueling the emotionality. We know that horses are emotional animals that respond to the emotions of the animals around them. Fear is contagious. Flight is contagious. And so we know that horses reflect our emotions. And when a horse is frustrated, um, nine times out of 10, the rider's frustrated. When a horse is angry, nine times out of 10, the rider's angry. So we have to channel calmness. We have to channel relaxed. We have to channel stay the course, stay the course, patience. Emotionality is best left ignored. I learned that when I was quite a young trainer and I was working with a young horse that never had his feet handled and I picked up a hind leg for the first time and it, it took a poke at me. And that's, of course, a natural thing for a horse that's never had his hind feet handled to do. And I thought I would be clever and spank the horse for it. And I just reached out and smacked him. And he, all, what he did, all he did was kick harder and faster the next time. So I learned fighting fire with fire doesn't work in that instance. And if I can just sort of ignore the behavior, stay out of the way, and continue to ask the horse for his foot or hold his foot or whatever I'm doing, um, then then he will get better. So emotionality is left best ignored. Or I learn with a particularly emotional horse, as my little mare can be, believe it or not, when she gets in a certain circumstance, I know exactly what circumstances are prone to set her off in her emotionality. And I know exactly what we need to do to get her back to calmness. She knows it too by now. Uh, we, we work on lowering the head. We work on standing still. We disallow the emotional drama, but we also give the horse tools for feeling calm and relaxed, whether that's moving the feet, lowering the head, cueing the horse to breathe. Um, I have some exercises I call three-step circling. You can learn about that on the daily doses of horsemanship as well. Um, those are all calm-down cues that are really important to help the horse deal with his emotionality. And finally, I'll just say always reward calmness and relaxation. Always return that horse to calmness and relaxation and compliance. Obedience trumps all other issues. So whenever your horse becomes non-compliant, always go back to think of it as a mental health problem and do whatever you have to do to return that horse to a calm and thinking state of mind and a compliant and obedient manner. To find out more about that, just go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and all the information you ever wanted is there. Well, that's all the questions we have time for today. I love sharing my horse care and training experience with you, and I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I'd love to hear what topics interest you the most. So if you have a question for What the Hay or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight 
or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. And here are a few tips if you want your question answered on air. I'd greatly appreciate it if you'd keep your questions concise and please proofread before hitting send. That helps us out a lot. Next month on my podcast, we're going to talk about training the very youngest of horses, winglings and yearlings, how to get them started on the right track. Fall is the season that we wean young horses, and that's often when their training career begins. So tune in. This will help you not only if you have a young horse, but also if you're training a green horse or a horse that's never been handled. Please remember to rate, review, and subscribe to my podcast and invite your equestrian friends to join us. Ride On with Julie Goodnight is available wherever you listen to podcasts. And don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. With my library membership, you'll have access to my full training library with literally hundreds of videos, full episodes of my TV show, plus behind-the-scenes clips, audios, articles, all of it searchable content. You can also enroll in my Build Your Confidence with Horses short course or get online coaching from me with my interactive membership, where I'll help you assess where you and your horse are now so you can move forward with a structured 12-month training plan and personalized coaching from me every step of the way. Just go to juliegoodnight.com slash join and start your ride today. No matter where you are in your horsemanship journey, whether you're new to horses or an old hand, whether you're training a green horse or refining your upper level skills, I hope you found some helpful information here to make your horse life better. Thanks again for your insightful comments and for those five-star ratings so that more horse lovers just like you and me, can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thank you for listening, and please stay safe and enjoy the ride. Mm -hmm.